1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I want us to, to kind of contemplate on that verse a little bit. Keep that tucked away in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that verse at the end of our sermon. Before we get started, though, into our talk, I want to talk a little bit about a popular show that's on television today. A show that follows a group of people as they live in a, a very different landscape than what we have today. Some would call it a post-apocalyptic landscape. And they are trying to survive against the odds. Uh, and a lot, a lot of people are being able to do it. There is a virus that is killing people. But the only problem is those people aren't staying dead. And I imagine most of you probably kind of know exactly what show I'm talking about. The thing is that those people that aren't staying dead, they, they, they sometimes... Uh, or excuse me, those people that they don't always look dead. That's what I was trying to get at. They don't always look dead. They move, they walk around, but they are certainly dead. Now, this brings up a topic of obviously we're talking about zombies, and we know that zombies aren't real, and, and nobody's going to go home and have nightmares about these things because they don't exist outside of Hollywood. But there is something that is very real to us, and that is death. And that's a very, a very hard topic for us to talk about. We're going to be looking a little bit this morning at death as we consider the working here, uh, as we consider this idea of the walking dead, uh, and we're going to take a look at death and some of the lessons that we can learn from death. But like I said, that's not a subject that we typically like to think about. In fact, as I, as I thought about and studied about this sermon, it just kind of, it gives me the creeps. It makes me uneasy. It's not something that I, I really enjoy doing, especially being locked alone in a little room by myself thinking about death. That's just not a real bright way to spend the week. But there can be some really good lessons to learn from death. This is a subject that brings awkwardness. This is a subject that brings discomfort. And again, it's a subject that no one really looks forward to talking to. Whether it be the death of a friend or a loved one, this is a topic that can be very, very heavy. It can be very, very hard. It brings about questions, many questions, and oftentimes very few answers. And it can be very painful, and it's something we just would rather not dwell upon. <laughs> We do not like to be around death. Nobody really looks at the funeral home, the morgue, or a mortuary, or a cemetery and goes, that's where I really want to spend my day. Those are things are not places we typically want to be because we associate those places oftentimes with things such as pain and loss. But they also force us to realize that our, of our own mortality. The fact that we aren't going to live forever. Our lives are not infinite but finite. But again, we can learn valuable lessons from the dead. You know, cadavers have been used for centuries to study and train medical students. There was a man who is famous for discovering the circulatory system, the way that blood is pumped through our body. For years, we believed that the liver created blood. And this man, as he studied and was looking through this and trying to wrap his mind around this, he realized the liver would have to create 500 pounds of blood a day if that was the case. It just didn't make sense. Where did it all go? And so he did what a lot of people were doing at that time. He dissected human bodies, and he looked at the way things worked. And in all that he learned, his name was William Harvey. And he learned about the circulatory system and how the part pumps blood and circulates blood through the body and how it is cleansed. Uh, he even went as far in all this as to dissect family members after their death. But great things were learned from this from the dead. And these sort of medical discoveries aren't the only thing that can be learned from a corpse. There's a few facts I want to talk about from a corpse. And these might sound a little silly, 
And I just ask you to bear with me because we will, we will make a, an application to these. One of the first things we learn about a corpse is a corpse never realizes it's dead. A corpse is, is at a state where the, the soul or the spirit has been separated from the body. And so there is no more thinking and no more uh, feeling. So it doesn't realize that it is dead. And it doesn't do anything on its own initiative. Those cadavers we talked about don't transport themselves to the university to be studied. At the funeral home, the, the, the corpse doesn't prepare itself. It does not bury itself. All this is done by the labor of others. Another thing that we notice about corpses is everybody typically speaks well of the corpse. No matter how, how rotten someone may have been in life, at their, at their funeral, whenever people are around the corpse, they tend to use a sense of decency and a sense of etiquette to keep conversations positive. People don't want to hurt the reputation of the, the body or of the soul that that body once belonged to, and they definitely don't want to hurt the reputation or the, the feelings of, of the family in an already hard time. And the last thing I want to point out, and again, these are very, very seem very shallow observations, but we'll make application of them. The effects that the mortician does to the body are temporary. It may be their job to make the corpse look as, as lifelike as possible, but eventually these things are, are simply temporary. Uh, uh, cosmetic applications. God has told us what is going to happen to our vessel and eventually that will be fulfilled. Genesis 3 and verse 19 says, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken and for dust you are and dust you shall return. Now we let's look at this and say, well, okay, that's, that's a whole lot of really nothing that I wanted to think about on a Sunday morning. That's not a lot of fun to think about. And again, I told, as I said, this, this lesson isn't one that really provides just a, a whole load of comfort, but it does provide a lot of lessons that we can learn as we look at the dead. When we make lessons that we learn from that and the applications, I want to start with making applications to the individual. The individual may not realize that they are dead. And when I say that, I want to transition now from physical to spiritual. They may not realize that they are dead. Look over with me in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 6 says, But she who gives herself to one pleasure is dead even while she lives. Now the context in this passage is talking about widows and true widows uh, and the, the responsibility that the church does or does not have to these widows. And it's talking about here, especially in verse 5, some of the definitions of a true widow. Verse 5 says she is a widow indeed and who is excuse me, who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. It says that she is a true widow if she is serving God with fasting and prayer. And so we see a discussion that compares the first one in, verse, in chapter 5 with verse 6. But she who gives herself to one pleasure is dead even while she lives. Even though this discussion is talking about widows, that's the immediate context of this discussion, it still applies in many ways today. There is a more general application of this verse in that those who live in pleasure are dead while they live. A death is separation. It is a physical separation of the soul from the body, and spiritually death is a separation from the soul and God. Over in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, God warned Adam. In Genesis chapter 2, he said, Regarding the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We know, we talked about this last Sunday, Adam did eat of it. But his physical death doesn't occur immediately. In fact, he goes on and lives for over another 900 years. So God must have been referring to something else. He must have been referring to a spiritual death. And we see immediately in chapter 3, 
chapter 3 and verse 8, we see immediately when that death takes place. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, uh, from the presence of the Lord God among the, the trees of the garden. <clears throat> verse 6 is where we read in chapter 3 that they ate of the fruit. Verse 7 says their eyes were opened. They knew the difference between good and evil. And verse 8, they were in hiding. Their fellowship with God had immediately been broken. Spiritually, they were dead. Likewise, a man without Christ, while physically alive, is spiritually dead. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 18, he says they are excluded from the life of God. Why would they be excluded from, from, his, from this life? Because the death, as he wrote of in chapter 2, is why they're excluded from his life. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you were formerly walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Many do not realize that they are dead. They think that they are alive. They think that everything is going well for them and that everything uh, is, is right on track for their life and they are truly happy. But yet, in their core, in their center, there is a disease of sin that is decaying and, and rotting them from the inside out. We can learn a lesson from the dead in that many do not realize they are dead. The next one is many do not do anything on their own initiative. Christ died in part to create a people who were zealous for work, but not just any type of work. Turn over to Titus chapter 2. Let me get myself going in the right direction. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 says, he, uh, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. <clears throat> God intends for his creation, for mankind, to be busy and to be working. And it is through this work that they show themselves to be alive. Notice how this is illustrated in, over in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, when we, we read of the, the vine and the branches... We see that there is an emphasis on the work of the branches. John 15, verses 1 through 8 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. The believer is the branch of the vine. 
which represents the, the vine, which represents Christ. And that root, he is the root that is hidden in the ground. Just like when we look out and, and we see a tree or a plant of any sort, the root is, is underground, is not visible to us from above. And so our lives should be with Christ, hidden, hidden with Christ. But from that root, just like in, real, just like in, in, in horticulture and in, in, in plants, sustenance and nourishment comes from that root and gives that plant the ability to bear fruit. And bearing fruit is what shows that that branch is alive. When fruit is being born, whenever that branch is, is barren and it's not bearing any fruit, then we look at that and say, okay, there's something wrong here. And, a lot, and if, if my experience with that old peach tree I used to have behind our old house, if we, if we let it go long enough, it's going to start killing other branches. And it's going to tear off and it's going to eventually kill that whole tree. And so what do we do? We cut it off. We cut it off before it can do more damage. We, we cast it away. That is what's talked about here. The branch is barren. It is taken away. And it is lifeless. And is suitable only for destruction. And so from the grapevine, the vine dresser looks for grapes. It shows it that the, vine, that the branch is alive. And from the Christian, we look for Christianity. The fruit of a Christian. Their temper and disposition, their life and their conversation, their devotion and their design are all transformed by Christ, made into the image of God and made to honor Him. We look for exemplifying or exemplary activities that show the purity and the power of Christ. And notice this is again an individual measurement. This is not a measurement of how Christians are being created by a group effort. This is not a, a measurement of, of all the collective work that a group is do, doing. This is an individual measurement of the life that each person on this earth should be living. So just because the branch next to us, uh, just because the branch next to an individual is bearing much fruit, that doesn't mean that by proximity we are bearing much fruit. But many people, Christian and unbeliever alike, expect that things ought to be done for them, expect that things ought to be done to them. I shouldn't be talked to in that way. I, shouldn't, I should have been considered in, uh, about this or about that. I've, I've done a lot of hard work here, and I, and I deserve some attention. thing is, if we aren't working in producing fruit, no matter whether or not we did in the past, we aren't living, we aren't living where we are at. At the very best, we are dying, and at the very worst, we are already dead. We need to make sure that we are careful and considered as individuals of whether or not we are doing anything on our own initiative. We also need to be cautious if we are being very well spoken of. Look over in Luke chapter 6, verse 26. This doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. If somebody's speaking well of us, doesn't that mean that we have done something good? And we all kind of probably enjoy having our, our ego stroke just a little bit. But Luke chapter 6 and verse 26 gives us a very, a very stark warning. It says, Woe to you! When all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. And if we make it our great desire to gain the praise and the applause of men, then we are valuing them more than we are valuing God. And this is a very real sign that we are not faithful to him, nor to the souls of others. Because the fact is, it can be very hard to say the hard and difficult things that simply must be said. But they must still we must still say them. You know, I'm reminded of Nathan when he approached David back over in 2 Samuel. This was a very difficult thing for him to say to David about the, 
the death of, of uh, Uriah and taking Bathsheba to be his wife when he had no right to do that and, and certainly no right to murder her husband. Not only was this a difficult thing to say, but just look back a few chapters earlier about what he was saying with David. Over in chapter 7, he was recounting the wondrous things that God had done for David throughout his life. He was looking at how far God had brought him and was even telling him that your children are going to build, uh, your son is going to build the, t the temple to the Lord. So it would have been a very difficult thing to turn around and go, we have such a good relationship. Look at this, we're sharing in all these great memories together and when we're sharing in what God has done, but now you've done something that's wrong and for me to say something to you, that could damage our relationship. That would be very difficult, but not only was it difficult, it was dangerous. Again, look who David was. He was the king. He's already murdered Uriah. What's to stop him from murdering Nathan? But, but Nathan puts all that aside to say what he, must, what he must say, showing, number one, his love for God, and showing, number two, his love for David. If we don't do likewise, then we are no different than the false prophets who, instead of showing the people their faults, spoke flattery to them, or just as bad, just simply said nothing at all to them. Now, this is not to say that we should be indifferent. Indifferent as to what people say about us. It's actually quite the contrary. You know, we, shouldn't we should always approach these situations where we have an opportunity to, to point out the fault of someone and show them something better. We should approach those things with love and with gentleness and kindness. And we should hate the reproach that we may receive that because it comes from a hard heart. It comes from one who is lost in sin. We should hate that, that reproach just as much as we should hate foolish praises of the lost as well. And then the next point I want to point out is that obedience, is not all, if it's not from the heart, is at the very best temporary. If our obedience to God is shallow, maybe due to, as we talked about last Sunday, an ultimatum from a spouse or from a parent, you have, to, you have to do this. You have to start coming to, to services. You have to be baptized. You have to, to, to start following God. Or maybe it's due to the popular choice. I looked around. All my friends were doing this, and I felt like I was going to be left behind if I, didn't, if I didn't join in with them. If we don't have obedience at the heart of our reason for following God, then it's very likely it will only have short-term effects. When we became obedient to Christ, we were doing more than just saying, I would agree with your views. Now, sometimes we kind of treat it like the, like the political pundits. Which side am I going to be on? I'm going to be on this side, and I agree with the things you're saying this time around. Next time around, I may not agree with them. They may, they may change. And they, may, they may not, or I may change. It's so much more than just saying I agree. It is a bond. It is a commitment. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, let's read with me verses 16 through 18. It says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one, of, of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of of righteousness. You see, there are two families described here. 
the family of God and the family of sin. They are two slaveries described here. Slavery to God or the slavery of sin. And we must profess to be slaves of righteousness in obedience from the heart to God. But if that does not describe our decision, the decision that we made from a devotion from the heart, then our lives will eventually begin to show whether our true commitment is to God or it is to servitude of sin. Which master will we be faithful to? James chapter 4. <clears throat> James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. Goes on to say, you adulteresses, you adulteresses, you do not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks of, to no purpose? He jealously, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. This does not describe a half-hearted attempt to follow God. This is a full-fledged desire to live in peace with God through obedience, through closeness, and pure commitment to him. Now, this has been a look at how individuals can become dead. Could be the walking dead. Look like they are alive, but be dead in their heart. But you know, the same things can happen through the local church as well. The local church can die as well. Many do not realize uh, that they are dead. Again, we see a very similar thing. They do not realize they are dead. And that is because, possibly, that they look back to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 and say, the church is, is built to withstand the attacks of the devil. Matthew 16, verse 18 says, The gates of Hades shall never prevail against it. And you know Christ's kingdom, over which he reigns and is head of, and is fulfilled in the church, will not die. Will always prevail. But a local collection of saints, which is made up of individuals, can certainly, can certainly start to die can certainly become dead. It can happen because individuals are there. And if it can happen to the individual, it can happen to the collective. Turn over to Revelation chapter 3. We'll spend a, the, a majority of the rest of our time in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were, about to, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night, or like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. <clears throat> we notice that the church at Sardis was recorded as having a name that they were alive, but they were dead. You know, just because we have a name, Church of Christ, over that sign down at the, at the road, that doesn't mean that we are alive. Just because we have a name that we were alive in the past doesn't mean that we are still alive today. Just because we have a name that we have good intentions to be alive in the future doesn't mean that we are alive today. The church at Sardis was told to wake up. 
That is really strong language. Really strong language to a congregation that shows that they were in a, in a tough spot. This was a last-ditch effort for them to turn around. They were dead, but they had time to change. He looks back and says, your work isn't complete. And you know what? Our work isn't complete either. Not until the day that he comes back and gets us. We must, no matter what stage of life we are in, be working till the Lord returns for his church. There are still members who need to be edified. There are still souls who need to, be, to hear the saving message of the gospel. And there are still benevolence that needs to be given to the needy saints. But a church may not see that because they are possibly too busy keeping house. Churches that only keep house and never take any initiative to reach out and to work, those churches are dead. Verse 3 again said, to remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. But it's more than just, just more than just remembering. It's more than just looking back and saying, you remember, you remember the good old days when this happened or that happened. Verses 14 through 19 go on to describe another sort of attitude that must be, uh, or another sort of description that must go with our works. Verse 14 says, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write this, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, the eye, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent." We must not be described. A congregation must not be described as lukewarm. Otherwise, they will be blind to their true situation. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree in the knowledge uh, of the knowledge, they saw their nakedness. To see the errors, the weakness of a church, they must first spend time in his word. They must first grow in the knowledge of him. And just playing church won't equate to, equate to being a living and a thriving church. We must also remember that if we are a church that is just well spoken of, that may indicate rottenness. Again, I'm be, to be clear, I'm not talking about a congregation that is praised for their commitment to the truth, but a church that can become a place of safe haven for the evil, for, for, for the lost and for the dying. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says this, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among those golden, <clears throat> excuse me, golden lampstands, say this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put them, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Just like the woe spoken of by Jesus to those who are praised by men, a church can become soft, soft on sound teaching to please its members or maybe its would-be members. 
We're not going to talk about those things, or we're not going to, we're, we're just going to kind of curb that, and, and we're going to water down the message because we want people to come in. Some churches have begun to, begun to overlook sexually immoral behaviors, whether that be same-sex behaviors or whether that be unscriptural marriages as well. Some churches have watered down the message, preached so that they will not offend other people. Some have refused to discipline those who, who desperately need it. And when a church has left their first love, they have fallen, and they are dead, and they are in need of repentance. And lastly, when a church loses its zeal, its zeal for the truth, it begins to decay. If a church is no longer burning for the truth, and a burning for a desire to fulfill it, if it is no longer determined to rebuke those who are in error, and is no longer committed to work in the kingdom, then a very real danger is present in that church, because they may appear alive. There may be, the, the pews may be filled, they may, they may be doing a lot of good things, and look so good because of there's an association there with Christ that can't be denied. They, they do have some association with him, but eventually the effects of the quote-unquote embalming fluid will begin to wear off. They will begin to decompose and deteriorate because they are not truly alive. So what is to be done about all this? We looked at a very, very kind of rotten sort of sermon. It's not something that just really makes you go look at it and feel really, really good because it's a really uncomfortable subject. What are we, what are we to do? For the individual and the church alike, there's only one thing to be done when one realizes that they are either spiritually dying or spiritually dead. And you, did you hear it discussed in every instance that we read in the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 3. Revelation, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19. We need to, as individuals and as members, whether it be the Lake Street Congregation, uh, Lake Street Church of Christ, or some other congregation, we need to take a good, honest, hard look at ourselves. And we need to ask ourselves, are we dying? Are we already dead? And if either of those be the case, we remember from where we have fallen and we repent. We remember what we have received and heard and keep it and repent. And we be zealous and repent. Individually or congregationally, we need to take heart. We need to take courage. Because we can be alive again if that describes us as being dead. If we look at ourselves and we realize I am dead or a congregation that I'm a member of is dead, we can become alive again if we do these things, if we remember, if we, if we follow, if we are zealous. And then one last encouragement. Maybe you happen to feel like you are not dead, but the people around you are dead or dying Christians. Well, then read Revelation chapter 3 in verses 3 through 5 with me. We left off in chapter, we stopped at chapter 3. Let's pick back up, or in verse 3, but let's pick back up again in verse 3. Remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and, I will not, uh, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does that tell us? 
tells us that even if the, the people around us in this world are dead, and even if the people in, in the church that we're a member of are dead, God still sees those who are alive, those who are committed to his work. And for those people, for those that are still alive, those who are still working hard, you just keep doing what you've always done. You take a firm stand for the truth. And you be steadfast, as 1 Corinthians 15 told us. And you be immovable. And you be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because guess what? Your toil, your work in the Lord is not in vain. We need to be lights. And we need to bring the light that we can to those around us and to the congregation that we work with. We need to be the salt that flavors the world around us and flavors the congregation that we work with. And we need to be watchmen that warn others of the danger that is around them. Now this morning, I hope this lesson has caused you to think. And I hope this lesson has caused you to examine your life, to examine your commitment to him. And you know what? This is something that I hope that doesn't stop today. It's something that I hope we do every day that we are blessed to live. And especially every Lord's Day is one of the things that we are called to do as we partake of the Lord's Supper, to examine ourselves. This morning, if you are not a member of the Lord's body, then you are spiritually dead. But you don't have to stay that way. You can be made as Christ was in death, buried with him in baptism, and raised up with him to newness of life, to a new life, committed to serving him. And we want to help with that. Or maybe you're someone who has become separated from God, just as Adam and Eve in that garden were once with him, but because of sin, separation existed, separating them from him, and they knew that they that their relationship had changed and they were hiding from him. Maybe you realize today that something has caused sin in your life. You have done something sinful and you have become separated. Maybe you even realize that you are dying. Remember that your life is in him, the vine. And we want to help you reconnect with that. If there is anything we can do to help you in these manners, won't you please come forward and let it be known as we stand and as we sing.